0: Well, um, I want to jump right into things from there. Um, This morning, we're going to be beginning a new series, and this is going to take us through the month of June and July. Uh, So, for the next eight weeks, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. Now, this is a really difficult book to understand. Uh, There are very vivid visions. You have some really odd behavior um, on the part of the prophet You have lots of statements of judgment on nations that don't even exist anymore in the modern world. And so it can be difficult to understand it in the original context of the book. And even more so to try to bring home these messages to our vastly different setting. Now I struggled how to, because you know, I, over the last few weeks I've been reading through Ezekiel, uh, trying to get a feel for the whole flow of the book, and I struggled with how to encapsulate the theme of these sermons, but I kept coming back to this phase, God's passion for his glory. Now that's not unique to me, it's a title of a book that is written by uh, John Piper, which borrows heavily from the American theolo- theological giant Jonathan Edwards. And what we're going to see, I think, in the prophet Ezekiel is that God is passionate about His glory. He is zealous for His name and and zealous for the right behavior of those who label themselves with His name. Now, why is it that God is so passionate about His glory or about His fame? You know, if we didn't know any better... With a title like that, we might think that God is a megalomaniac, that he's fixated on what others think of him. But that's not what this is about. God's identity and his sense of self-worth is not based upon the opinions of others. God is the creator. He is majestic, and his very being and grandeur is worthy of praise. And so, God is therefore deserving of the rightful expression of what it means to quote-unquote love God. We throw that out a lot around in our culture, love God, to be called according to his name. God deserves a rightful expression of what that means, right? Because God's not focused on, on himself out of any sense of insecurity. That might be how you or I might act. I think about figures like Regina George in the movie Mean Girls or Sharpe Evans in High School Musical, right? They extrude this this external strong and confident exterior that demands praise or respect, but a lot of times it's rooted from the uncertainty that they feel within, The Lord is on the opposite end of the spectrum. It's precisely because He knows who He is and His worth that He calls others to worship and to obey Him. So as we journey through Ezekiel, we're going to see this uh, intersection of God's passion for his glory with the Hebrew people who have defiled themselves with spiritual adultery. That's the language that the prophet uses. So if you'd open your Bibles and turn to Ezekiel chapter 1, we're going to start this series by looking at this vivid revelation that Ezekiel received. So Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel sees these incredible heavenly living beings, but they're just the appetizer to the climax of God's glory of a vision that is far greater than these terrifying beasts that Ezekiel first sees. So let's, let's start by orienting ourselves with the book. The first three verses provide some background information for us, so follow along as I read. This is Ezekiel 1 verses 1 through 3. In the 30th year, in the 4th month, on the 5th day of the month, I was among the exiles by the Chabar Canal. The heavens were opened and I saw visions of God, or from God. On the 5th day of the month, it was the 5th year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Chabar Canal and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. So to, to unpack these three verses, I want to use our five W questions to help us understand what's going on, right? Who, what, where, when, and why. So first, who. Verse three clarifies who's speaking. Ezekiel names himself in this, in the third person, but uh, he, he moves to the first person later in the book. Ezekiel, who is a priest, who is the son of Buzzy or Buzi, I don't know how you pronounce that. the prophet who wrote this book and we will see his prophetic call from god in the following chapter next week that's who second what what is it that we're going to experience it's the word of the lord and visions that came to ezekiel now one thing to note about the prophet ezekiel is that there is a very strong visual focus in this book a number of the other prophets are focused on a lot of dialogue right? Audible words from the Lord. And, and there's surely that as well in Ezekiel, but we're going to encounter a number of various visions as we work our way through this document, some, some of which are things that you're probably familiar with, like the Valley of Dry Bones, um, but we're going to see a lot of these visions here. So what follows is this revelation of God to Ezekiel. Third is where. Now, this is an important one. Verse 1 tells us that this takes place in the Khabar Canal. Does anyone know where the Khabar Canal is? I wouldn't have known either, just reading it. But this is an area, this is modern day Iraq. This is kind of the, the canal, the river uh, tributaries between Baghdad, probably know where Baghdad is or could find it on a map from the uh, Gulf War and, and whatnot, and Basra, which is kind of on the southeastern part of Iraq. All right, but at this time, this was the land of the Babylonians. This is where the exiles were located. Fourth is when. This is also really important to to place this book. So Ezekiel begins by saying that this vision happened in the 30th year. We don't, no one actually knows precisely what that meant. Uh, Some scholars think that the original readers would have understood uh, what that was a reference to. Some scholars think that this was a reference to Ezekiel's age, that he was 30 years old when he received this vision. Uh, That's how the NIV, if you're following in the NIV, translates it. I think it says in my 30th year. Um, but it's, not, it's unclear on that. But verse 2 brings clarity. We might not know precisely when the 30th year, the 30th year of what, takes place, but verse 2 tells us that this same time was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehiachin. Now, you can learn if you've been following along in our Bible reading plan, we've, we've talked about, we read this in 2 in Chronicles real recently. Um, earlier than that, you can kind of learn about his rule in 2 Kings chapter 24. Uh, Basically, Jehoiachin is king of Judah, the southern land of Israel, for a a hot minute. I mean, he's king for like three months before the Babylonians come in and capture Jerusalem. And at that time, they set up a puppet king named Zedekiah. Now, you might have heard of the, the exile, the Babylonian exile, but the event the proper event, the proper exile doesn't happen until 11 years into Zedekiah's reign. That's when Jerusalem is wiped out. All of Judah is carried off into Babylon. But prior to that, right, when this took place, when, when Jehoiachin was deposed and Zedekiah was set up as this puppet king, there was kind of like a pre-exile where the Babylonians went through the city and they took the, the cream of the crop, if you will. Right? That's when, if you read the book of Daniel, Daniel and his friends would have been brought over into Babylon, Babylon right? 11 years before the, the, the proper exile. So Ezekiel is saying he's having this vision five years into his exile, he would have been one of those pre-exile individuals, five years into to this, this pre-exile, meaning that there was another six years to come before Jerusalem is raised to the ground. And so that sets the date for us around 593 B.C. So you've got a group of people, a group of, of Hebrew people in Babylon kind of getting a, a picture, a vision of what's going on back home while they're there. Lastly, why? Now this is the big question of the book. Why is it that God provided these visions for the Hebrew people while they were in exile? And we'll, we'll investigate a bit more the, the purpose when we look at Ezekiel's call next week. But one important thing to note about this is that God is appearing on the shores of a river in Babylon. This is a vision of God far from the Jewish homeland. God meets with Ezekiel to provide an explanation for what's going on in their homeland, but it's clear that God's not bound by geographic borders. While some of these people, some of these Hebrew people are in exile, God is drawing near to them. He is not far off. He's not waiting, saying, hey, I wish you well from, you know, several hundred miles away. But he has traveled with them and is near to them in this time. Now, what follows those first three verses in Ezekiel is a, a vivid glimpse into the presence of God. And, and I, I want to try to be somewhat concise. I'm not going to read the next section, the next uh, uh, I don't know, 18 verses through verse 21. Uh, but you can follow along if you want. Uh, if you want to keep it open, I'm going to highlight a few themes from that passage. But it's pretty long-winded, and I, I'm not, and it's very confusing as you read it. So verse 4 tells us that the start of this vision there is this stormy wind that came out of the north. I think of the setting of this vision as taking place in the midst of a hurricane. You know, We're not talking 25-mile-per-hour winds, I don't think, here. Now this might seem like a simple detail but it's quite profound now consider this sequence what follows there's all this movement these heavenly beings throne of god in the midst of the wind but if we contrast that with another setting another vision of god that we might be familiar with which comes out of isaiah 6 that's when isaiah is before the throne he sees the seraphim he gets you know oh what was me and he gets his his mouth touched with the coal in isaiah There are similar, there's a lot of similar imagery, right? These heavenly beings, these angelic beings surround the throne of God. And there's a little bit of activity, right? The angel has to move to the altar to get the coal and put it on uh, Isaiah's mouth. But it's largely static. It's a very contrived setting. But here in Ezekiel, what we see is an abundance of movement. It displays a God who is living who's active, who's on the move, right? God is not restricted to the temple in Israel, and he's not restricted to his heavenly throne room where Isaiah meets him. But he is traveling and has met Ezekiel here deep in pagan territory. One commentator put it this way, quote, everywhere the prophet looks, he sees bustling activity. The first thing that the, the prophet sees are these heavenly beings which later in the book are labeled as cherubim. Uh, cherubim are not, I know I talked about this several months ago uh, on an FAQ Sunday, but cherubim are not those, you know, cute little naked babies that we find in Renaissance paintings. These are very, very strange creatures. They're some sort of human-animal hybrid. They have a variety of faces from the animal kingdom. They're winged, they moved in straight lines without having to turn to the side somehow have these wheels connected to them that are full of eyes. Now, when we read sections like this, it's really difficult to understand, are we supposed to take this vision in a literalistic manner? Is this the precise visual representation of these heavenly beings? Or is this vision that Ezekiel has meant to be understood somewhat symbolic in the writing? Or maybe there's meant to be a combination of both. You know, the, to, to use some, some references from some Christian teachers and rabbinic scholars, uh, they, they unpack some of these historically in tradition. Because right? these beings have, the living creatures have four faces. They're, each one is considered to be the top of their respective social orders. I think there's something significant in that. Humans, the highest creature or animal in the created order. The lion was, created the high, was considered the highest of the wild animals. The ox was the greatest domesticated animal, and the eagle was thought to be the supreme bird. Look at verse 17. The cherubim move in any of the four cardinal direct directions. You know, Think of a compass north, south, east, west. They don't have to turn to the side. Some, some think that this is meant to demonstrate omnipresence. That they're kind of everywhere, all at once. Although their movement is not self-dependent, they don't just move of their own volition, the text instructs us that their movement is dependent on the movement of the Holy Spirit. There are these wheels that I mentioned earlier that that are covered in eyes. Uh, Some speculate that's meant to be. I mean, maybe they were literal eyes, but a lot of people think that's meant to suggest that omniscience, some degree of all-knowing, that they see everything that's going on. I mean, these are clearly awesome and intimidating beings. So, Huck, if you want to go, I have just a couple of pictures. Some of them for you in the back might be difficult to see, uh, but, but some, some artists have tried to, uh, to um, replicate some of what is, is found in here. So here you have you know Ezekiel. We'll see that scroll next week. You've got this throne, and then, I don't know, some kind of weird uh, circular, maybe maybe it's UFO sighting, uh, circular thing with these... Uh, Animals, these multiple faces. Why don't you go to the next one? That's a very kind of traditional classic understanding. Again, you have, I mean, this stuff is bizarre if you actually saw it. If you're taking the scriptures literally of what he's seeing. Go ahead, go to the next one. There, I mean, I I like what this one kind of shows God the Father above them, above this angel or cherubim. Okay, go to the next one. This is one, so this is actually, this is really hard to see because of the contrast. It's a lot of white on there. Um, it actually is a, there, there's a, if you, if you like Google it, there's a, a GIF of it where th- it's actually like flapping its wings and its eyes is blinking. But this is actually created by uh, AI um, of kind of taking what's in that, that uh, passage and trying to put it into an art, artistic rendition. So again, the, 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 these are terrifying if you were to see them. You can go back to the main logo. Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, and there's many who have tried to, we, we've tried to like rationalize or grapple with like these images of what do they actually look like? But I think if we get so fixated on the, that picture, we are distracted from the main event of the chapter. Right? These living creatures are not what Ezekiel is supposed to be focusing on. They're merely a conduit for the presence of the Lord God Almighty. There's a rich background of this connection between these cherubim and the Lord. They are believed to be the servants who carry the throne of God. Take Psalm 18 verse 10. It says this about God. He rode on a cherub and that's the singular of cherubim. Cherubim is the I is am the at the end is how Hebrew makes something plural. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. Notice that ideology, that that image of wind as we start with verse four. You could point to Exodus 25. This is a section of the law that described the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. Verses 17 and 18 say, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. What would that have been? I don't know, three feet, three plus feet. And a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work you, shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. So, so the, the Ark of the Covenant, on top of that, the lid was meant to have two cherubim sitting on top of it. If, if you've watched uh, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, they actually have some archaeological uh, you know, credibility there when, when they deal with some of this stuff. But that Ark of the Covenant was placed in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle later in the temple. And that ark was believed to be the footstool, the place where God rested his feet when his presence was there on his throne. And so what we see in our passage is that the, the cherubim are, are supporting the throne of God. The cherubim in, in Hebrew thought was were also the guardians of God's presence and his holiness. When Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden in Genesis chapter 3, right, what is it that God placed? To, at, the, at the gate, at the entrance to keep them free entering. It was a cherub, a cherub, the cherubim with a flaming sword. And so these cherubim in our passage are supporting God. They're meant to be fierce creatures, kind of like God's bouncers, if you will, in here. Think of, you know, why don't you put that next, that next image on? Think of a palanquin or some call a, a litter. You might have seen images like this in movies, you know, where you have the servants that are, that are carrying someone's, you know, throne on there. It's kind of what it was like. God is seated. Now, as we'll see, this is not biblically accurate in this. God is seated much higher than them, but this is what, this is the image that's meant to be conveyed, that these cherubim, these incredible uh, uh, awe-inspiring images uh, are meant to just be a symbol of servants supporting the Lord. You can go back to the logo let's go uh, oh this is important right that they as we saw in that psalm god rides the cherub it's kind of like a chariot it's like his heavenly chariot he's riding on the winds of the storm like a warrior and what we're going to see this is a really important theme in the book of ezekiel that god is on the move and the reason he's on the move is he is coming to wage war not against the babylonians but against his own people he's here for judgment for his own people not to deliver them. All right, let's go back. I, I want to read the rest of the chapter. We're going to pick up at verse twenty-two, and you know, if you want, feel free. You can follow along, or if you want to close your eyes and try to to listen to the description of God's glory and try to visualize what's going on here. So often, I think we we can be a little bit too close with the Lord, uh, and we do have access. We do have a nearness through Jesus, but as a result, can take for granted just the the awesome nature. I know I use that word a lot, but like in its, you know, true etymology, awe-inspiring nature of who God is. This is Ezekiel 1, 22 to 28. Over the heads of the living creatures there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystals spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings, the cherubim's wings, were stretched out straight one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse, over their heads, And when they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of its waist, from its waist up I saw as it were gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire. And there was brightness all around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all along, all around, excuse me. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face." And I heard the voice of one speaking. As we turn our attention to the picture, this picture of Ezekiel's encounter with Yahweh, we reach reach the climax of his vision. Above the wheels, above the breathtaking creatures, in that expanse far above, he witnesses the glory of the Lord, Right, for the first time in this description, the awesome visual display is joined with overwhelming sounds. Verse 24 describes the sound of the Almighty like the sound of many waters, like the sound of an army marching. You know, as I read this, I imagine like being at the, the brink of the ocean in the middle of a storm and you just have waves, the sheer power of those waves crashing over top of one another. This overwhelming display sets the stage for Ezekiel to lay His eyes upon the throne of God. This throne has one who possesses the likeness of a human, but clearly is far beyond anything that we would be a supernatural power. The torso and above are described as gleaming, molten metal. Below the waist, fire and brightness. You know, after the service, we're going to close with a song, Chris Tomlin's song, How Great Is Our God. Notice the language that we use in that, of God's greatness, that He wraps Himself in light. Psalm 104 says this, the psalmist declares, Bless the Lord, O O my soul, O my Lord God, you are very great, you are clothed with splendor and majesty. How do you get clothed with splendor and majesty? It's that brilliance, covering yourself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. That's what Elizabeth read this morning. This radiance of God is compared to a rainbow in verse 28, right, hearkening back to Genesis 9, 13-16, describing the rainbow following the flood story of Noah. These are the only two places in Scripture that this language of God's bow in the clouds is used. And I believe that reference is important for what we're going to see. Because I said in a few minutes ago, right, God is on the move. He's, on, he's in His war chariot He's preparing himself for battle against a people who have wandered far off off of the path. Much of the book of Ezekiel are statements of judgment. They're statements of wrath. But that description of a rainbow signals hope. There is hope in the midst of gloom, the gloom of judgment. All of this, all of these sounds, these sights that Ezekiel is taking in is overwhelming to him the end of the chapter, he falls down on his face. He's overstimulated and can't handle anymore. And I mean, he, he hasn't even seen Yahweh in all of his glory, right? What does it say? It says he's seen an image of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And there's like two steps removed in there. And as he lays there, as he's face down, the Lord speaks. But we're not going to see what he speaks this week. That moves into the next chapter that we'll look at next week, the call but for now I want to turn our attention to application. What does this passage teach us about God, about ourselves, about the world? And and I think this is challenging for us because there's so many places of divergence with Ezekiel's description, with Ezekiel's experience from our own. I, I don't know about you, but we probably haven't had an experience of God that's quite this vivid. We're not displaced from our homeland. We're not under the current threat of a political superpower, but this passage gives us some insight into the nature of God that I think might be an important correction for a 21st century American theological mind. First of all, this passage showcases that God is not tied down to the old ways of doing things. This whole chapter speaks of God coming to wage war against His people, and this would have clashed with the expectations of the Hebrew people. God would never judge us. Like, we're his chosen people. Jeremiah, who would have prophesied a, a little bit before Ezekiel, but kind of a similar time, I mean, it was the same type of thing. He's, he's speaking words of judgment to the Hebrew people, and they're like persecuting him. They're whipping him, throwing him in stocks, throwing him in the jail, because it's like, you can't say this stuff. It, it'd be like us, you know, having someone who, who's preaching the fall of of America, you know, that we're, we're going to be invaded. And that happens a lot. I'm not saying we, sh- we should be saying that, but we're going to be like, you're crazy. You're, you're a nut job. God is not confined to a box of our creation. He cannot be manipulated, right? God was believed to dwell in the temple of Jerusalem, but here we see him ex- uh, appear in an unexpected place, right? The shores of a pagan nation. But I think there's more in common with Ezekiel than we might think. Because in in America, we like to throw this moniker around that we're a Christian nation. I I don't know that that's an accurate picture of history. Uh, But we see this language used quite often to try to legislate different elements of biblical morality, both on the political right and the political left. But the truth is, in most of these situations, what we've done is we've tried to force God into a box of our choosing. we've claimed God for whatever agenda we wish to pursue and feel like it's like a magic talisman, you know, to protect us, to say, all right, now we know we're on the right path because God's on my team. We're doing the Lord's work. But in truth, all of us, like the Hebrew people of this time, are rife with idolatry, and we're going to see that over the, the coming weeks. We don't really We don't really want God in the fullness of his presence to appear to us and say anything challenging to us. That's not what we're looking for in God. Instead, we want to just, you know, it's the um, Christian Smith sociology professor at Notre Dame uh, coined the term, I know I've used it before, uh, moralistic, therapeutic deism. The average American, that's what they want in their relationship with God. Moralistic, give us some sense of like right and wrong therapeutic, a God that's going to make me feel good about myself, and deism, which is a belief that God, like, created everything. It's like the watchmaker, you know, you make a watch, you wind the clock, and then you just put it on a shelf and let's it go, We don't want God too involved in our lives. Instead, we, you know, in, in this, we want to just slap God's name on our efforts and believe that that automatically indicates his approval while we go on traipsing In our idolatry of power or of greed or of identity or whatever it is. We don't want God to challenge our preconceived notions. Instead, we want him to sanctify the path that we've chosen for ourselves. In the midst of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was asked if he was confident that God was on the Union side. He was purported to have responded saying this, Madam, I am less concerned whether God is on our side than whether we are on his side. I mean, talk about a perspective that can stop you in your tracks, right? I'm less concerned whether or not God's on my side, and I'm more focused on, am I on his? As we fight, as we see this day in and day out in our news cycles, We see culture wars just going on and on. We fight believing, whether it's us or those out there. And And it's very easy, let me tell you, it's very easy for us to point to someone else out there. There's all kinds of really good examples of people who are doing this really, really poorly. But let's not use that as an opportunity to not look at myself. As Chris fights the culture wars, do I believe that God is on my side? just like the Hebrew people did. What we see from the passage here, and what we're going to see in Ezekiel, is that the coming of God's arrival was not good news for them. In our passage, He's coming in judgment. There are times that we think God is on our side, but truly we're not on His, because the God of the Scriptures is a God who is not silent on issues of oppression or injustice or immorality. And all of those things continue to abound in American culture, continue to abound in the church. So while God's arrival might not feel like good news because it's judgment, ultimately there is hope for us. We hope for that little aside in verse 24, the rainbow, that in the midst of the storm clouds of judgment that we believe that God is faithful, that he's just, that as followers of Jesus Christ, we have security in the promise, that promise of redemption. Even Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, it's, it's kind of a little bit outside of that typical understanding of, uh, you know, once saved, always saved, I don't have to worry about anything once I prayed the sinner's prayer. 1 Corinthians 3 says, you know, you build, you don't build on anything but the foundation of Jesus, but you can choose to build on that foundation with worthless materials, hay, straw, you know, sticks, Or you can choose to build on it with things that are precious—gold, silver, precious gems. Paul says, you know, judgment is coming, and that work is going to be tested by the fires of judgment. And those who build with with uh, you know um, uh, worthless materials, they're going to be burned up. They're going to suffer loss. But that foundation is unshakable. They will be saved. So, I just want us to, to, to acknowledge that we may not completely avoid any judgment, but our hope is fixed on the promise of Jesus Christ that reconciliation with God is at hand. And so, this morning, as we prepare to, to leave this space, I want to have our antennas tuned to this vision of God, the splendor and majesty of God, because his brilliance his glory, his name are things that he takes very seriously. May we be slow to invoke his name to our agenda and instead be overwhelmed by the beauty and power of his presence. And so, as we, you know, go, I have a couple of reflection questions that I want us to look through. So, Huck, if you want to put the first one up there. So, this passage describes some of the physical characteristics of God. In this image of god you know when you pray if you or you picture god what does he look like and is that picture that you have biblical you know like that first one that we showed the real old one is you know old guy with beard i don't know there's no facial hair described in this one some other passages talk about it um but you know think thinking about that like we have this image of god but is is this image of god supported by what we see in the bible so just kind of wrestling with that you want to go to the next one now the truth is we have um we have greater access to God through Jesus Christ than anyone in the Old Testament so we do have access to God that Ezekiel did not have and I, and I want to stay that up front but again I don't want us to be you know too cute and cozy with the Lord and miss out on who he really is you know looking at Ezekiel's response I think it's verse 28 to this vision how does the way he responds, does that in any way shape how you ought to approach God? And I'm not saying it has to shape everything, but, you know, it's like the pendulum. We don't want to swing too far one way. Um, we also don't want to be too far of like, oh, I'm terrified to enter God's presence because we have security in Jesus. Right? But holding that tension, where is that? So. Lastly is this. Are you more concerned that God is on your side? Pick whatever it is, whatever political issue, whatever theological issue, whatever uh, uh, interpersonal conflict you might have. Are you more concerned that God is on your side or that you are on his? And why is that? If I can invite you to join me in prayer. Lord, may we take seriously your call in our lives, that You have called us to life in Jesus, that You love us, that You work for our good through all circumstances, but may that not be… may we not take that for granted in a way that we miss out on the awesome nature of who You are. Lord, as we you know, think about it, as I'm praying here, Lord, and processing through this, I'm thinking about all these images that I shared of, of the, the, the cherubim, these heavenly beings, and the uncertainty of what the precise nature of it is. And, and Lord, through Scripture and even through some of the writings of the church, fathers encourage us to not focus on, uh, let's not get distracted by those types of things. May we not create an idol uh, of this awesome being, these awesome beings, but focus on you, Lord, and your goodness. Lord, may we use this week to take a, a, a firm look, to be introspective in our lives, to see if there are places that we have put your name on on our agendas, trying to sanctify, to make us, to give us a good conscience that we're in the right in doing your work. Lord, may we instead be focused on what is it that you want us to do? What is it that you want? How do you want to see your kingdom come here on earth more fully as it is in heaven? May that guide us in humility and love for you and our neighbors. In Christ's name, amen.